0: So Jéssica. I came here in 2017 from Brazil. Uh, sorry, so my name is Jéssica and I arrived here in October of 2017. I moved here from Brazil as an au pair. So, first weekend with my new family, they invite me to church because they come here. And I was, yeah, sure. And then I just stay <laughs> for every other weekend. <laughs> It's different when you move from another city than when you move from another country. I didn't know anyone and I felt that the English was a barrier, like I felt that. I was, okay, I'm gonna start serving. I need to start somewhere. I knew about the translation team, but I was also like, I I wanna emerge in a culture. I don't wanna just hang with the culture that I already know. So I started greeting and adore first, but then they needed help for the translation team. And I was like, okay, I can help. So I started actually helping creating process to train, to train new people to translate and to to help with the computer and everything. But then I ended up translating too. Right after I think maybe four months coming to Seacoast, I really felt like to uh, to lead a small group. I love how it's a family, you know? So I've been, I moved here alone. I moved from another country and I decided to lead the small group in another language and they always help me, respect me, understand. When I've been through some hard times here, like when I had to deal with grief, I had my family to, to help me to just talk about something else, just pray for me and even me as a leader, they were supporting me. You're gonna make, have to try more than one group and it's okay like you don't have and even if you are in a group and I think that's maybe not a good fit for me like try another one I'm 100% sure you'll find your family like friends for life here
1: Good morning, glad you guys are here, really glad to be in church this weekend because we weren't sure it was gonna happen. So it took a ton of work just to make all of this happen for the weekend and I wanna recognize a few people on our team who worked tirelessly from literally the moment the storm passed us until services began last night, even through last night, even into today. So. uh, we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for these folks, so I, I wanna acknowledge our tech team who helped get us back online with all of our technology. Trace Pupke leads them. I wanna acknowledge our AV Systems team, led by Luke Guyquod. He, he's been in here working to make this building kinda come back to life. Wouldn't have happened without him. I wanna acknowledge our Communications team, led by Jack Hoy. They've been communicating to let you guys know, yes, we're having services, here are the times, all that. All of our campus pastors, and you're joining us, all of our campus pastors have been working to make sure their campuses are ready. They're led by Sam Leske, so thank you to you guys. We're glad to be here with you as one family today. And then our facilities team here at Mount Pleasant, led by Scott Hammond. He and his crew were here on site right away to help get the building back in order. And our men's ministry pastor, Brian Lewis, brought together a team of 40 people a little more than 40 actually from men's ministry, from women's ministry, from college and 20's ministry to clean this place up because when you drove on site, it literally looked like it had snowed leaves and branches. Every square inch of the parking lot was covered and people came out with shovels and blowers and rakes and backhoes and everything that they could bring to fix this place up and get ready for today. So we couldn't be here without all the work that you guys have put in. We're grateful for you all of the time but we want to recognize you specifically this week. I also want to acknowledge the fact that as much as it took tons of effort to get our team ready, get this place ready with our team this week, it took a lot more people to get our communities ready, and and they're still going to be working on this for the days and weeks to come. So our first responder family here in Charleston and everywhere where we have a campus, whether you're... Uh, fire and rescue or law enforcement or military or medical, if you're a first responder in any capacity, would you stand? We wanna say thank you to you guys for all of the work that you do. Thank you. We just, we wanna say as an entire church family that we see you, we recognize that you guys are moving towards the chaos as we're all backing away from it, so we appreciate the sacrifices you make. I also wanna do this this morning. This is, this is pretty exciting. We, you may know that uh, Seacoast is part of ARC, which is the Association of Related Churches. It's a church planning network that is worldwide. This started as a vision of Pastor Greg's many years ago. He wants to see a life-giving church planted in every community in the world. And so we've been busy uh, not not just with Seacoast Church, but also building other churches around the world. And this weekend, we're launching... 28 new churches throughout the U.S. Here is a slide. I don't know if we have names of those churches. If we don't, you feel free to go to ARC's website, but 28 new churches in one weekend is pretty fantastic. So you guys are a part of that. Some of the giving that you do here helps us to plant churches in other places. So you're, you're as much a part of the ARC family as you are the Seacoast family, and we're grateful for what you do. I wanna start with a question today. How many of you know what this is? How many of you have ever seen one of these? It's a Bluetooth speaker. Chances are you've got one in your house. It's something you can connect to with your phone or your tablet wirelessly so you can play music. This one happens to be unique because it's got a little suction cup thing on it, so I, and it's waterproof, so I suppose that means like you can connect it in your shower, you're really committed to your music if that's your thing or a pool, or whatever. And so this one was given to us as a gift. And when we got it, my, our 17-year-old daughter, Emma, was fascinated with how many things this guy could stick to. So I would come home from work and find it stuck on the fridge, stuck on the glass, stuck on a mirror. It was kind of the Martin's twisted version of Elf on the Shelf. Like, where's the speaker today? And so one day, I'm gonna knock this thing over. I'm gonna stay behind it. How's that, is that good? One day, uh, I was doing some work in the kitchen, and uh, Emma decides, like, she's gonna give this thing a full battery of testing, Right? So she said, hey, Dad, can I stick this on your head? And I was like, yeah, what could possibly go wrong with that? So she, get, she gives it a thorough lick, you know, and then sticks it right on my forehead. <clears throat> and everybody laughs, You know, like my, she's laughing, my wife is laughing, we're all having a good laugh, some pictures were taken, and then I try to go to take this thing off. And when I say it was stuck, I mean this guy was stuck. Like I'm pulling it, twisting it. I could not get it off. And now they're laughing even harder. I had to pry a fingernail up under it. It's gonna stick to my head if I don't put it down. I still have trauma about it, okay? So I had to pry a fingernail up under it just to get it off of my head. And everybody had a good laugh, and you know, we're like, oh, that's great. You know, We should use this as a gag gift or whatever. And we all kind of went to bed. It was later on a Friday night, went to bed. The next morning, I woke up, and I walked in the bathroom. And I walked up to the mirror, and I look in the mirror. I'm like, that wasn't there yesterday. It was this giant speaker hickey right in the middle of my (laughs) forehead. I know that's the word you thought you'd hear in church today. Which is not, you know, it's not really a big deal. Like, so what? There's a giant red mark on your forehead. Explain that to your friends. They don't really care, but... Saturday in the spring okay so for a pastor that's game day like I marry people all the time especially on Saturdays I had a wedding I was doing that afternoon with a giant speaker hickey on my forehead and so they were like don't you know my my daughter and wife wake up and they're like they think this is hilarious like oh you look at the thing on your head and so they said, don't worry about it. We'll cover it with makeup. And so we, we just didn't much think much about it. I got in the shower later that day to get ready for the wedding. And then after I got ready, they, they pulled out all their makeup gear, like everything they had. And they go to work. They're spackling all kinds of stuff on my head to try to cover the size and redness of this speaker hickey. There wasn't enough makeup in the house. And so I had to go to the wedding. I eventually, you know, they did the best they could and I left, and so I get to the wedding, and have you ever been in a conversation with somebody where they're not focusing on your eyes, <laughs> right? Immediately I knew the makeup had not worked because everybody I'm talking to is like just doing this. And you, they're not looking at, it's, you know, you, you've had the moment like you've got something in your teeth or something, a pimple or whatever, but nobody's looking me in the eyes and the groom's walking, walking me around introducing me to some of his family and friends like, hey, this is our pastor, he's marrying us. And the typical response was like, really? <laughs> That's the guy you got? The one with the big thing on his head? So I meet some more people and eventually just make my way over to where the bride is. I needed to just check on her before the ceremony and she was in like a carriage house off to the side. And so I walk in and it's the bride six bridesmaids, a couple of their mothers, a professional hair stylist, and a professional makeup artist. And so I come in, and we're all talking, and everyone's like, yay, wedding. And, but I can tell, like, they're not looking me in the eye. They're all still staring at my head. Finally, one girl, she just can't stand it. She's had enough. She goes, um, what's on your head? And so I explain, you know, we have this speaker at the house, and my daughter thought it would be funny, so she put it on my head and lost my note. Now I'm on YouTube. Why am I on YouTube? I don't want to go to YouTube. (laughs) Give me just a second. I'm going to check out what's new on YouTube. (laughs) Be with you in a moment. (laughs) All right, so I explain about the speaker and you know, just like she had stuck it on my head, tried to get it off. Now there's a giant speaker hickey there. I'm sorry about it. So the, the makeup artist hears this. She's got someone in her chair. She taps her on the shoulder and she's like, you're out. She looks at me and she goes, have a seat, honey. Puts me in the makeup chair. Now I've got the bride, six bridesmaids, two mothers, a makeup artist, all working to try to hide this thing on my head and the knock at the door happens and it's the father of the bride. So he opens the door, he's walking in, and he just freezes. He's like, should I come back? And I just looked at him and like flash a gang sign. It was the most manly thing I could think to do in the moment. And I explained to him, like I said, the speaker and this thing, and I'm really sorry. But anyway, they worked their magic, and the thing kinda went away for the most part. I don't think it showed up in the pictures, but I had a problem that day that none of my resources could fix. And today I wanna talk to you about a similar situation that the disciples faced. How's that for a transition, huh? (laughs) Right from hickey to Jesus, that fast. So we're gonna look at a similar situation that the disciples faced without the hickeys, but before we do, we're gonna pray, okay? Father, we are grateful, grateful to laugh, grateful to be here. We do pray that you would meet us and show us whatever it is we need to see about you and ourselves that we might live in the freedom you died to bring us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let me give you a little backstory on where I'm headed today. The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. You probably know this. We get that that word from the Old English word meaning good news or good story. These, These Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these, guys, these were people who spent time with Jesus either as, as his disciples or apostles. They were present to observe many of the things that they wrote about, yet each of them wrote from a different perspective. And so some people think that because there are variances from gospel to gospel, that means there are contradictions. I don't really think that's the case. I think it's more likely that they wrote about what was important to them. They wrote about what resonated for them personally. So if something stuck out to Mark, he put it in his gospel. It might not have been that important to Luke and Luke didn't record it. So you see these slight variations between these books, but these guys wrote about what was important to them. Now with a couple of exceptions, like the crucifixion and the resurrection, there was one other thing that all of them wrote about. It's the only miracle we see recorded in all four of the gospels and that was the feeding of the 5,000. And today we're gonna look at it from Luke's point of view, to set the stage for you, the disciples had just returned to Jesus. He had given them authority to go out and heal the sick and help the poor. And now they were eager to come back and report everything they had done. The other thing we learned from Luke is that Jesus had just gotten some really bad news. His friend, John the Baptist, who baptized him in the Jordan River, had just been killed by Herod, who hated Christians. The other thing we know, not just from Luke, but all the gospel writers, is that wherever Jesus went, crowds followed him. Huge, massive crowds gathered around him. People were drawn to Jesus because he was different from their religious leaders. There was something authentic in him that just made people want to be around him. So as he gets this bad news, and he's trying to have this conversation with his disciples, he again finds himself with this huge crowd pressing in to hear him speak. So Luke tells us that Jesus gets into a boat with just his disciples and sets off for the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, just to get away and kind of decompress what happened, how was there the time that they just went out to heal the sick and help the poor. But here's the problem, they were on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, so the crowd could just run around the edge of that northern part of the lake which you're gonna hear me say Sea of Galilee and lake. It's the same thing. It's an interior body of water. It's just called the Sea of Galilee. I'm gonna show you a map, though. So if you look up here, it was, it was probable that these guys, where they started was either in Capernaum or Gennesaret. They're on the northwest corner of the lake. Jesus gets into a boat to head for the northeast side of the lake, which is Bethsaida. And so because they're on that northern tip, the crowds could just run around the edge of the lake, and that's what they did. So as Jesus and his disciples reached the shore, the crowds also arrived. And here's where we pick up the story. Luke tells us that when he saw the crowds coming, again, he's trying to get away, when he saw the crowds coming, he welcomed them. He welcomed them. Now that's an important word because it's only mentioned a few times throughout the New Testament and the word literally means he had compassion on them. So here he is trying to get away, yet they arrive again and Jesus has compassion on them. He'd just gotten bad news about a friend's brutal death. He's trying to have this conversation with his disciples who are eager to have the conversation with him and he's surrounded by a crowd and his response was to have compassion on them. Luke says it like this. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Luke continues and tells us, late in the afternoon, the disciples came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. But Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. There were about 5,000 men there, which means there were likely north of 10,000 people because they did this weird thing back then where they only counted the men. Thankfully, I think we've moved past it. But Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down. And then taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So how many of you are thankful today that Jesus had the idea to throw the first tailgate party? Huh? (laughs) Especially this time of year, right? You think we come up with this stuff on our own, it's all in the Bible, all goes back to that. And I know, you know. chances are, you've probably heard this story. You could probably have told it to me. And I've talked about this before, but wherever we see a miracle in the Bible, it is never just about that miracle. There is usually something more that God wants us to see, something about who he is or something about who we are. So the question that we have to answer is, what in the world does God wanna show us through the feeding of 5,000 people? It's obviously And it had an impact on the gospel writers because it's the only thing all of them wrote about outside the crucifixion and resurrection. So there's probably a bunch of things that we could pull out of this story, but I'm gonna focus on three today and here's the first one. You can take notes on your outline sheet and if you've got, if you wanna do that, by the way, and you open up your outline sheet, don't be too disappointed, it just says my name and then nothing else. It's kind of a reflection sometimes, but nonetheless, like. We couldn't print these sheets because of the storm. So, you got a blank sheet, you write down what feels good or just draw me a picture, give it to me later. But here's the first point, here's the first point that I think we need to draw out of this story. There was room for everyone. There was room for everyone because everyone has a seat at God's table. This area of the Sea of Galilee was called the Bethsaida Plains. I had an opportunity to go to Israel with my wife a few years ago and it hasn't changed much. And so I'm gonna show you a couple of pictures. It looks just like this now. It looked just like that then. It's just a big, vast area of open, rolling, grassy hills. You can see the Sea of Galilee right there. That's what it looked like about four years ago. Hadn't changed much. So it was on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd had come from the opposite side, a side of the, of the Sea of Galilee that was populated and developed. It was filled with buildings And homes. It was defined by walls and property lines. Depending on who you were, there were probably places you could go and places that you couldn't go. Places where you would have been welcome and places where you probably would not have been welcome. You see, in town, there were boundaries and there were barriers. That would have made it impossible for this huge crowd of people to gather together. But in the wilderness, Jesus removed all the boundaries and barriers to make a very important point. Remember, there's always something more he wants to show us. And this is the point, that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, you have a seat at God's table. Everyone has a seat at God's table. I think that's what God wants his church to look like. I think that's what God wants every church to look like, and I know that's what we want this church to look like. We want everyone to feel like they have a seat here if they wanna be a part of this family. The second thing I think we need to draw out of the feeding of the 5,000 is this, that community is critically important in our lives. Community is critically important. As Jesus was preparing to feed this massive crowd of people, he tells the disciples to have them sit in groups of about 50 each. Now, why would he do that? I think we have to look back a little bit to find the answer. In verse 12, where Luke records this, the disciples come to Jesus with a few objections to what he has said, and they give some reasons. The reasons are this, send the people away because they've come from a long way. It was probably a six to eight mile walk depending on where they were across, around that part of the lake. It would have been rugged terrain and it was a huge crowd of, pe- crowd of people, so it was, it was gonna take a couple hours to move from where they were to where they where they met at the Bethsaida Plains. So send them away because they've come from a long way. They also said, send them away because we don't have the resources to meet their needs. They're hungry, let them go to the villages and countryside to buy food. We we have five loaves and two fish and there are 10,000 people here, that's just not gonna work. So send them away for that reason. And send them away because we're in a remote place here. Now that doesn't sound like a big deal, being in a remote place, but that word remote in Greek means desolate. And in the context that Luke would have been using it, it would have meant a place without aid or protection. One thing we know about this culture at that time is that it was still pretty barbaric. And for that reason, people avoided traveling alone because it made them more vulnerable to being robbed or beaten or killed. That story about the Good Samaritan, probably a scenario where that guy was traveling alone. Another example would have been Joseph and Mary. He would never have taken that journey to Bethlehem with just he and his wife. They would have traveled in a large group of people because just he and Mary would have been been vulnerable, it just wouldn't have been safe. So back to the story. How did this group of 10,000 people arrive? They arrived kind of like a group of 10,000 people. But how did they leave? In groups of about 50. Jesus pulled them into smaller groups to make a very important point. A very clear statement that community is important. Community would literally help them survive the journey back to the places from which they came because they could protect one another and support one another. Let me offer you another example of why community is important. Now, what, what comes to mind when I mention the name King David? You guys fire back some things that you know about David. Go ahead, this is the interactive part. Man after God's own heart. Brave. Warrior, Bathsheba. There it is. There's the spectrum. Man after God's own heart, Bathsheba. Like that, we all know, right? You can't, we know, David, sorry. So it doesn't take long. You guys probably know the story about this. But David walks out onto an upper patio of his palace and from there, one night, he sees a woman bathing on her roof naked. I feel like we need to stop here for a second because I'm telling you a story where someone is naked and it's not me. That's the moment, like I've arrived, and I, like if, if you don't know what that means, you just ask somebody who's laughing around you, I'm sure they'll take you to lunch and they'll explain. But seriously, she's on her roof bathing. Ladies, if you're, just, if you're considering a home renovation and a tub on the roof is on the short list, let's just put that one in the category of bad idea, okay? And fellas, if you're thinking of this Somebody's calling the cops. Nobody wants to see that stuff. So David sees Bathsheba, calls for her. She comes to his palace. They sleep together and she becomes pregnant. Now David has a problem. So David calls for Uriah, her husband, to be brought back from battle in hopes that he will sleep with her and just assume the child is his. Uriah comes back, but because his mind is so focused on the battle where his men are, he doesn't go home to, to Bathsheba. And so now he's got another problem. So he decides, I'm gonna send Uriah back to battle, but this time on the front line where he surely will be killed. And so all of this is done, this web of lies and deceit is done to cover up his mistakes. If you ever wondered like where we get the ideas for shows like Scandal or How to Get Away with Murder, it was right here in the Bible all along. It's nothing new. In 2 Samuel 11, we start to see David's life unravel. And it all began after one bad decision. And I'm not talking about Bathsheba. It actually started before that. In verse one, it says this. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent away all of his men, but he remained behind in Jerusalem. Did you catch that? David sent away all of his men, but he remained behind in Jerusalem. He was without a community of friends, without a community of brothers who could encourage him and hold him accountable, who could say, David, that is a terrible idea. In that isolation, he made the worst decisions of his life. If there's anything in you that is resistant to the idea of community, if there's anything in you that has you believing you can do this on your own, let me encourage you to take a lesson from David's life. He was a man after God's own heart, and he couldn't do it. Just like this huge crowd of people would need each other to make it on the journey back to the places from which they came, we need the support and encouragement of community in our lives in our journey of faith. If you think you can do this on your own, I'm sorry to have to tell you you're believing a lie. God never meant for faith to be lived out alone, never. Being in community with others offers the kind of encouragement and protection that all of us need when things get tough. When things get tough, not if they get tough, they're going to get tough. And when that happens, we are gonna need the community of people to say, hey, I got you. I see you, I'm with you. The third thing that we don't wanna miss in this story is something that actually took place after the miracle itself. It's something that Jesus is recorded having said in John's gospel. So we're gonna look at John's perspective for a second because there Jesus tells his disciples to pick up the remaining food that was not eaten. Now that's interesting by itself. We know there were five loaves and two fish, right? We also know there were north of 10,000 people here. That's not an equation that works out, right? But Jesus was able to take the little bit of food that was offered. And the text tells us that after giving thanks for that little bit he had, He didn't just meet the needs of the crowd, he exceeded the needs of the crowd. Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to know that the little bit of faith God has given you is enough to give birth to a miracle. Some of you need to know that the little bit of forgiveness that you're holding on to, believing that God is showing you, even though he is showing you all manner of forgiveness, is enough for you to show forgiveness to someone else. Some of you need to know that the little bit of love that is still in you is enough to rebuild the relationship. He didn't just meet the needs of the people, he exceeded the needs of the people. John goes on to tell us, after they had eaten their fill, Jesus gave his disciples specific instructions. Now remember I told you that they wrote about what was important to them, right? So John just used the words, and I don't think he used them carelessly, He gave his disciples specific instructions. That means he's about to tell us something really important. Four words, one huge statement. Let nothing be wasted. Let nothing be wasted. Now why in the world would Jesus care about a bunch of pieces of broken bread and fish? To be honest, I don't think that he did. I don't think that's what he cared about. I think he wanted to make a bigger point because in case you hadn't figured it out by now, in case we don't realize it by now, this story, this miracle is not just about food because food is not the only thing that we are hungry for in this life. Some of us are hungry for direction or guidance. Some of us are hungry for healing. Some of us are hungry for hope. Some of us are hungry for all of those things. And just as Jesus provided more than enough to meet the physical needs of this crowd, he often provides more than enough to meet our needs too. But when he meets us right where we are with exactly what we need, how should we respond? I think we should do what he said let nothing be wasted. Let nothing be wasted. I'm gonna start to wrap this up with a quick story. Many of you know that several years ago, my wife found herself in a pretty serious battle with depression. A relationship with a friend had triggered some childhood trauma and it just, she just began to spiral. She didn't wanna be depressed, she didn't choose to be depressed, but how many of you know that depression doesn't really give you a choice? And There were times when both of us just kinda thought, this will be our battle to fight for the rest of our lives. It was that deep. I, I believed that God could heal Dana. I totally believed that. I wasn't mad at God for the depression we were in. I mean, it was difficult. But I believed God could heal Dana. But I don't think I believed God would heal Dana. I was sure that God would protect us. I was sure that he would sustain us. But I wasn't sure that he would heal. And that was my mistake. That was my lack of faith. In January of this year, Dana said to me after we'd been at a prayer service here at the church, we were driving home and she said, I think God healed me tonight. I sensed something break in me during prayer. And I remember thinking to myself, I hope it's true. Like I want that to be true. Gosh, we've wanted this to be true for so long now but could that really be true? And I remember feeling a little bit mad at God because Dana was so convinced, so convinced that she was ready to talk to her doctors about coming off the medication that they had been prescribing for her to manage things. My fear was, what if this isn't a healing? What if it was just a good day? Could she handle the disappointment? I remember going surfing the next morning And there weren't many people out because it was January and it was freezing. (laughs) And so I I was sitting on my board and um, with not many people around. And I I remember I just kind of started having it out with God. I wanted to give God a piece of my mind. Have any of you ever tried that? Give God a piece of your mind? It's it's interesting how he listens so patiently and then he very kindly just hands it back to you. Like, oh, hey, this piece of your mind, I didn't need it. Thank you, though. (laughs) That's kind of how it went. The conversation sounded something like this. God, we have wanted this to be true for so long, but I don't want her to be hurt if this is not really a healing. I have spent the last 25 years of my life trying to understand who you are and how you operate in this world so that I can help other people understand that. I've done two master's degrees and a doctorate to try to figure you out to get my head around who you are. And I had this tidy little box, this systematic theology that you fit into. And last night, you blew it all up. Now, I, I can't say that I have ever heard God audibly, but I have heard God often in my life. There've been many times where he's just kinda lit off these truth bombs that shake everything up. And that was, this was one of those times. I sensed God saying, very clearly sensed God saying to me, Adam, you may not like this, but I have never and will never fit into your tidy little boxes. And as for this thing that I'm, that I'm doing in Dana, I am not asking you to explain it. I'm just asking you to receive it. And in that moment, I kind of realized that all of my efforts, despite every effort to tame God over the past 20, 25 years, whatever it was, that there was something that was and forever will be about God wildly uncontainable, but eight months later, here we are, September 8th, and with her doctors carefully managing the process, Dana takes none of the medications that she was on in her depressions. It was interesting to me that we were asking for a miracle, sure. Like we prayed, I can't tell you how many times we prayed. God, heal her, help her. We were praying for that miracle and God did it. I wasn't praying to be healed, and God healed me. He healed me of unbelief that I didn't even know was there. Part of what made that process easier was the community of people we had around us. It was our small group, a group of people who stood with us throughout all of it like family, who reminded us continually that God specializes in miracles. Here's why I share the story with you. We walked through that low land of depression much longer than either of us wanted to and God lifted us out of it. And it's now our responsibility to let none of it be wasted. We need to be willing to share this story even though we can't explain it. And it's, it's her responsibility to be willing to share this story with others. God provided all the healing that Dana needed and more, all the hope that she needed and more. And now she gets to share that story with others who are hurting and hungry in the same way that she was. So why is it important for us to talk about this today? Why is it important for us to remember that everyone has a seat at God's table, that community is vitally important to our life with Christ? and that nothing in our lives should be wasted. Because next week, we're gonna do something where all of these apply, all three of them. Next week, we're gonna start a series called Welcome Home. And this series has the potential to change the trajectory of our lives. The purpose of the series will be to create an opportunity for us to look at what it means to be part of this Seacoast family. Here at the church, we've got four values. It's really simple. Find God, grow your faith, Discover your purpose and make a difference. So what might that look like? What would it look like for us to live that out as individuals? That's what we're gonna explore as a church. For the next four weeks across all of our campuses, we are asking that every single person be a part of a small group. As we look at what it means to live out those values and grow in our relationship with God together. So here's the question I need you to answer today. Am I gonna join a group or am I gonna start a group? You notice I'm not giving you the third option of am I gonna pass? Because honestly, you'd be crazy not to take advantage of this. It is very rare that is an entire church family, 14 campuses, that we have the opportunity to grow our faith by focusing on the same thing together. But with this study, we will all have the same starting point. So am I gonna join a group or am I gonna start a group? Now, if you've never done either of those, you don't need to freak out. We've made it super easy. All of the content for our Welcome Home series is gonna be available online through Right Now Media. That's where we're putting all of it, so you can access it anytime. If you don't have access to Right Now Media, I'm gonna show you how to do that. The first thing you need is the Seacoast app. If you don't have the app, you should. It would help you know things like, are we having church this weekend because there was a storm? So get the app. But when you get the app, the front page of it looks like this. There's that top part is a banner that scrolls and eventually you'll see that button that says Right Now Media. If you click it, this is what you'll see. It's a screen where you can put your information, just your name, email address, and what you're interested in. They're not gonna blow you up with emails. It doesn't profit them to do so. This is all free to you. The church is their customer, so they blow me up with emails, all right? You're welcome, I'm taking that for you. So you don't need to worry about that. But once you've created your profile, your username and password, then you can go to RightNow Media either on their app or on a computer or a tablet or anything. You log in, and this is their homepage. This is what you'll see. Once you're logged in, you'll see that little Seacoast deal. But up in the top left corner, you see that little, those three bars? That's called a hamburger button. I don't know why, I, I, don't, I don't name things. But it's called a hamburger button. If you click on that, you'll get a drop down menu. And at the top of it, you'll see Seacoast Church. If you're on a computer, you'll see that in the middle of your screen, a little bit of, a little bit down. But if you click on Seacoast Church, here's what you'll see. So that was two steps, guys. Hamburger button, Seacoast Church. That was all you had to do. Hamburger button, Seacoast Church. And this is what you'll see, Welcome Home, coming soon. There are four videos, four sessions, plus a leader training video. None of the videos are up now, so if you go there today, <laughs> you'll be disappointed. But in a, in a week, they will all be up because we start the series next weekend. The videos are all being finalized now. But that's where you'll find it. So if you've never been a part of a group or never led a group, this is how to do it. It couldn't be easier for you. We're not asking you to, to possess some extensive measure of biblical knowledge, we're just asking you to create some space in your living room or in your office building or whatever to have a conversation about what it would look like to find God, grow in your faith, discover what you were made to do and then go do it. This is the easiest starting point that you will ever have to become part of a small group, part of a community here at Seacoast. We can't make it simpler. And so we're hoping that all of you are gonna join us for the next four weeks because here's the absolute bottom line. We all have a seat at this table, at God's table. It may be time that we pull up our chair. Community is vitally important, maybe far more important than we're willing to to recognize. And we all have something that shouldn't be wasted let us pray. Father, we are thankful. Thankful that stories like this one show us what our next step ought to look like. So we pray for courage, God, that you would help us to take that step, to grow with you, to connect with others, to be a part of a family that can push us, that can protect us. Father, we need you, and we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name.